Going through a divorce sucks. And the amount of emotional energy required can often feel debilitating. Everyday stuff can start to feel extra challenging because the baseline is a rocky foundation. And teaching and going through a divorce requires navigating the anger and regret, resentment, and grief that comes along with it on top of finding a way to show up for the kids in front of you. Now, for those of you who have been hanging with me for a while, you know that pushing through and keeping it together is not what we do here, which is why I invited Sherry Friedman here today, and she is a divorce coach and helps people ditch the drama and do divorce differently by giving people the tools to manage their emotions and get out of the constant feeling of activation to get into a place of peace and calm, which, yes, is very possible. So if you are thinking about divorce or going through a divorce, maybe you've gone through a divorce, or even if you are supporting a friend who is going through it, you're going to want to listen up and take notes on this episode. Sherry brings a wealth of knowledge and experience that will pave the way for a new perspective in going through this very trying time. And if you are feeling burnt out, make sure to download my free resource, 10 Ways to Beat the Burnout for Strategies that You Can Start Today. So go to empowerededucator.com slash resources. Remember all the passion and vision you had when you first went into teaching? Feeling like building young minds and creating community through your work would make a lasting impact on this world? Well, those days may feel like they're behind you now because you're exhausted, stressed, and overwhelmed and frustrated. But I'm here to tell you it doesn't have to be like this. In fact, the love of teaching never really went away but it absolutely needs transformation. Welcome to the Take Notes Podcast. I'm Jen Rafferty, former music teacher, mom of two, and certified emotional intelligence practitioner. And I'm here to light the way for you. In order to create a generational change for our kids, we need to shift the paradigm away from the perpetual stress and overwhelm and into a life of joy and fulfillment. This is Education 2.0, where you become the priority, shift how you live your life, and how you show up both at work and at home. So take a sip of steamy morning coffee and grab your notebook. It's time to take notes. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another fantastic episode of Take Notes. I'm really excited to share this conversation with you today because this is something that is near and dear to my heart and something that we don't often talk about. So I am here with the incredible Sherry Friedman, who is a Juris Doctorate, a certified divorce coach, and a certified mind magic practitioner. And she is a family law attorney with almost 30 years of experience as a divorce professional, now practicing exclusively as a divorce, co-parenting, and relationship coach. And she uses a trauma-informed lens to combine her legal wisdom with mindset and somatic practices to help women ditch the drama and do divorce differently. And Sherry helps clients strategize the next best steps to improve communication and begin to heal before, during, and after divorce. So Sherry, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm really excited to dive into this conversation because there is a lot of stress, shame, judgment around divorce and being in a professional setting, especially around kids, there is always this 
feeling mm-hmm. of just showing up. You have to just show up, whether it's by distraction or maybe compartmentalizing. But there's all of this underlying stuff that happens when you're going through a divorce that makes doing the everyday stuff really difficult. So I'm really excited to dive into that today. So just thank you. Thank you again for being here. I want to go first before we even dive into that stuff. Why divorce coaching? Why is this something that you were interested in? So as you mentioned, I have been a divorce professional for almost 30 years. Crazy, right? I practiced family law for over 17 years. I'm trained in mediation. I'm changing the collaborative practice. But there was a point in my life several years ago where I was kind of at a crossroads. I had been working part-time. I was take, took a step back from actively practicing and I was figuring out what to do next as I was, my children were getting older and I was getting ready to re-enter into the world of working full-time. And I discovered divorce coaching. And when I became certified as a divorce coach, I realized this is the missing piece for pretty much everybody who is going through divorce and beyond divorce. And even thinking about divorce, because if you are not able to manage your emotions, if you're not able to regulate your nervous system, if you're not able to sort of step back, you're constantly being activated. You're constantly reacting instead of responding. And you will never have that sense of peace and calm that is possible when you have the right tools in your toolbox. So peace and calm and divorce (laughs) in the the same sentence, still actually do something physically to my body, you know, and I am somebody who has gone through divorce, I've gone through the mediation process, you know, this is something that I consistently work on. But can you talk a little bit more about that missing piece, as you explained, and how you can even think about peace and calm in a time that is so chaotic and emotionally driven? I would argue that it is essential to be able to find that neutral, right? That peace and calm, because if you aren't able to get there, like I had mentioned before, you're constantly reacting. And so when you have to interact with your soon-to-be ex or your co-parent and someone that you really don't like very much or someone who activates you, triggers you constantly, if you're not able to get to that place of calm, you carry that activation, that trigger with you wherever you go. So while you're parenting your own children, when you show up at work, if you open up your email and you notice an email from your soon-to-be ex or your co-parent and you automatically go into like, oh my God, what does he want now? Or you get a text, right? A text message and you try to ignore it and you get another one and another one and another one. And your whole system is just like, oh my God, like, why can't he just leave me alone? I'm at work. Doesn't he realize I'm at work? So disrespectful. He doesn't respect my boundaries, all the things. And here you are spiraling, 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 spiraling down the rabbit hole. But when you're able to recognize, oh, nothing has meaning until I give it meaning. And oh, I don't have to respond to that unless it's truly an emergency, which most of the time it's not. So being able to step back and say, I don't have to open that email. I don't have to respond to that text is huge, especially when you have to show up and be teaching or parenting your own children, right? If you're constantly in that state of 
chaos and anxiety, you're not showing up as your best. Yeah, completely. And I'm being very aware of my own body as we're having these conversations, which is so interesting because even as someone who is this, this far out, I've been doing all this work. This is a practice, right? This doesn't ever go away. And I just want to highlight that too, that this is something that is a continuous part of your life because like you said, it's so easy to get triggered and activated even when we're having these peripheral conversations about it, right? So I want to go back. There's two things that you said that I would love for you to talk about a little bit more. The first is neutrality. And can you explain a little bit what you mean when you say that nothing has meaning unless you give it meaning? And how do we get to a place of neutrality? Because again, this is so emotionally driven, right? And there's there's so much backstory and narrative that comes along that with every interaction, it just brings up this wave of all of it all of the time. So how do we even get to a point where we can say, okay, this thing has happened and I am neutral about it. What does that look like and how do we get there? So like you said, it is a practice and it is ongoing. And I'm so glad that you brought up the fact that you're far out, like you're several years out from your divorce, but yet you're still doing the work and you still get activated. And this is why working with a coach post-divorce is as important, if not more important than actually while you're going through the process. So there's a lot of value in working with a coach while you're going through the process, but there's also a benefit to working with a coach, even if you're already years past divorce, because it is a practice. I, I kind of got off track. Yeah, so. no, I was asking about neutrality. And so, you know, as even as someone who has been doing all of this work for so long, keeping that neutrality and not putting meaning on it is challenging. So I'd love to know what does that neutrality look like and how do we even get there? So it's being aware, noticing, right? Noticing, oh, that email came in and I automatically went down the rabbit hole. And then not beating yourself up about it, just being aware and then putting into place the tools that you will have in your toolbox to say, okay, what do I want to do about it now? If I don't have to give that meaning because truly nothing has meaning until you give it meaning. So when you come into it with your biases, your backstory, your narratives, you give it all this meaning when in fact it may mean something totally different. And so it's just not easy, but you can choose to just let it be neutral, have no meaning because when you don't assign it meaning, that's how you can remain neutral. When you start to give it that backstory, the biases, the narratives, your old default emotional triggers, right? When you bring all that in, that's when you give all, it all that meaning. And that's when you get pulled away from your focus, which if you're working, your focus is on your work and your students. And when you get activated and triggered, you get your focus gets pulled away. Yeah. And I think the thing that you said that hit the hardest for me was the choice. It's a choice. And we forget, right? We give away our power so easily because we are overcome by emotion and the story that the idea that you can choose how you want to respond to any situation seems so far gone in that moment because you're so activated. So I think you're spot on with getting in touch with yourself, noticing the activation so you can come from a place of conscious choices and, and take back your agency. And so, you know, the other thing to that, which what you said before that I wanted to ask for a follow-up about is when you said, you know, you don't have to respond. And I think 
there seems to be this urgency, right? So something happens and then you want to just take care of it right away. But even in that time, then it seems like you're giving away your agency there too, because you don't realize you actually don't have to. So I imagine this kind of falls under the category of like boundaries or something. You know, so can you talk a little bit more about how you can create some of those things when you get that text message or you get that phone call or you have an interaction where you have a moment where you get to say, do I need to respond to this right now or at all? Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that again, takes practice and that I do a lot of work with my clients on just recognizing you have a choice. Do I respond right away or do I put it aside and come back to it later? Because unless it is truly an emergency, it doesn't need to be responded to. And in fact, when you give yourself that pause, it allows you to respond instead of react. If you respond right away, you're reacting. You're reacting on what you're reading. You're reacting from emotion. And it usually doesn't go the way that you would want it to go in your responding. If you're trying to get a certain point across or you want your soon-to-be ex or your co-parent to do something and you're responding in a reactionary way, it's also filled with emotion and it's likely to trigger and activate them. But when you're able to step back and either not respond at all, not even read it right away, or if you read it and you're like, "Woo, I just felt that. Like you said, you know, when I was talking about it, you just felt it in your body. You feel it you're able to say, okay, I'm not going to respond to this right now. And I'm going to come back and read it at a later time. And then even if you're still activated when you read it at a later time, what I suggest is writing the response, not sending it, sitting on it for at least 24 hours, and then going back to it again. And I work a lot with clients on a method called BIFF, B-I-F-F, which was created by Bill Eddy, who is the high conflict guru. I studied under him. I trained under him for his high conflict for coaches. And BIF stands for Brief, Informative, Firm, Friendly. So all correspondence with your co-parent or your soon-to-be ex, it should fall under that category, right? Is it brief? Is it informative? Is it firm? Is it friendly? And then there's three A's that you look for as well. Am I giving advice? Am I admonishing? And or am I apologizing? Because those three A's will also create activation or trigger in an especially high conflict situation. So if you are soon to be ex or co-parent is a high conflict personality, those are the things you want to try to avoid when you're corresponding via email. Hmm. I wish I knew those things. (laughs) (laughs) You know, my divorce happened during COVID. So even besides the fact that we don't talk about this. This is not generally something that you want to share all the time. And for me, I'm a highly compartmentalized person. So work is work. And my emotions are something that I'm dealing with at home is over here. And this is over here. And I'm, I'm getting better at, at weaving those things. But on top of that, there was the isolation too of the pandemic while I was going through this thing. And I didn't even know these tools were out there, right? These are things that are available that when we're so in it, we can't really see past our nose, (laughs) right? Um, Absolutely. That's one of the things that when you're so in it and you can't see, like you said, past your nose, it's like you're in the basement. You're in this dark basement and you can just see like what's right in front of you. And so when you're able to, and this goes back to getting to neutrality, when you're able to, so it's dark in that basement, right? No windows, no hope. 
That's where all your low level energy lies, your fear, your frustration, your anger, your shame, your blame, your embarrassment, all of that, right? That lives in that dark basement. But when you're able to come up to the ground floor where there's a little bit of light, a little bit of hope, it's still, it's peaceful, it's neutral. And that's where I try to get, teach clients how to get there because sometimes we want to go all the way up to the rooftop where we have 360 degree view and there's perspective and there's light and there's hope and there's all of the wonderful, beautiful feelings that we feel. Sometimes we just need to get to the ground floor and that's where that neutrality is. Mm. Yes, that resonates completely. And so when you are having to do work, being a parent, going through divorce, juggling all of these things while dealing with a very significant, traumatic and life-changing event. What are some of the things that you suggest? I'm I'm even hesitant to use the word self-care because when people said that to me when I was going through this, I just wanted to punch them in the face. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't want to call it self-care, but this is, I think, a better way to, to describe it. How do you make yourself the priority so you can show up as the person you want to be in all of those spaces? So my suggestion would be to allow yourself to feel what you need to feel and not try to push it away, not try to say, I need to put on a brave face. It's weak to feel sad or angry or frustrated. Giving yourself the space to feel your feelings, to maybe not punch someone in the face, but maybe punch a pillow, right? Or maybe do a little screaming, scream release. And there's proper ways to do that. And working with a coach or even a therapist, right, will help you with the proper ways to do this. There's a rage room, which I know you're familiar with rage rooms. Love the rage room. And I think it is genius for people going through divorce, especially if you're feeling a lot of those feelings of anger and rage and hate to go to a rage room and just release it. Because once it's released, right, there's this heavy weight lifted off of you. So those are in and of itself forms of self-care. Yes, you know, you can take bubble baths and you can take walks and drink water and exercise, all really important when you're going through divorce, but also finding ways to release the emotion and not beating yourself up. If you are feeling sad, if you are crying, if you go home and you're just like curled up in a ball sobbing and, you know, want to eat a pint of ice cream and then allowing yourself permission to do that. As long as you don't get stuck there, as long as that doesn't become your go-to and your only, right, that's where you live. We don't want to live in those feelings, but we want to be able to release those feelings so that we can move up to the ground floor, to the neutrality, and then eventually all the way up to the rooftop. Yes, to all of that. And the thing that comes up for me and that I've heard from other people going through divorce, going through loss, you know, several other areas that kind of this can relate to. Mm-hmm. It's when you open up the door to the feeling and the crying, if you have not been a person who has done that in the past, there is this fear that, okay, I don't know what's on the other side of the door. And so if I open the door, then I start crying in the middle of class. I start crying to my colleagues. You know, when someone asks, how are you doing? Then the tears just start to come. How do you navigate that in relation to wanting to release but wanting to do it appropriately in a way that makes it feel safe. Sure. So one thing would be that if you do allow yourself the release in a private space, it lessens 
the feelings of release when you are in a public space, like in front of your classroom or with your coworkers. But not always, because this is an emotional time and divorce is painful and pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. And so when you think of it that way, can you just repeat that for the people in the back? That was, I want to just, I want to urinate on that for a second. Yeah, absolutely. Divorce is painful. Pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. Yes. And what I mean by that is suffering is when you allow yourself to bathe in and wallow in and cover yourself in the pain. But when you allow yourself to feel it, because It is a grief process. Divorce is a death. It's a death of your marriage. It's a death of the life that you envisioned. Even if you're the one who's initiating the divorce, it's still a loss. If you have young children, you no longer are with them 100% of the time. That's a loss. Friends that you thought were friends might no longer be your friends. That's a loss. Family members who are your in-laws may no longer spend time with you. That's a loss. There's so much loss associated with divorce, not just the dissolution of the marriage and the loss of your partner, but so many other pieces. And so it's important to understand that and to allow yourself and give yourself the space to grieve, not only while you're going through the process, but also after. Because what I have found is that people will say, well, I've already grieved. I've already cried. I've cried. I can't cry anymore. And then... A year later, they might say, oh my God, I can't believe, why am I feeling like I'm grieving all over again? And it's because they cried, but they were releasing, but it wasn't in the context of all of the loss that was yet to come. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. And so there's, you know, mourning is a huge part of this. And again, at least going back to my experience, there was mourning for that. But at the same time, it was literally the same weekend that the world shut down. So then Mm -hmm. there was the mourning of the life that I had the day before, the job that I had standing in front of all of my kids in a choir situation, directing that and homeschooling all of a sudden. So the tremendous losses that happened, we don't look at those losses generally as a society as sort of having the same weight as an actual death. And I, I think this is maybe one of the reasons why I wanted to have this conversation on this podcast to, to highlight this loss in a way that normalizes grief of divorce with the same space and mass (laughs) as the loss of a life because we don't treat them the same. We don't. And and it's right. Did they feel the same? Absolutely. And it's arguably more difficult because when you have a loss of a life, people come around you, right? Food is brought, flowers are sent. People want to help you. People want to spend time with you to help you through the mourning process. When you go through divorce, it tends to be the opposite. People run away. People don't want to be associated because of fear that maybe their marriage isn't as strong as they thought it was or whatever the thought process may be. But you tend to be alone and feel very lonely. And that is something that I agree with you. There needs to be a shift, a change as to how society perceives divorce. And one of the things that you mentioned earlier that made me think about failure and how people think of divorce as a failure and it's embarrassing and there's a lot of shame around it. 
but there doesn't need to be because it's not a failure. Yes, your marriage may have failed, but you were not a failure. And what I have found and why I am so passionate about the work that I do is that the people that come to me, their self-esteem is in the toilet when they're going through divorce. And it's so important to understand that regardless of what happened in your marriage, whether you were the one who initiated it, whether your spouse is the one who initiated it, you are enough. You have always been enough and divorce doesn't change that. Yeah, that is very powerful and an important lesson to learn through that because it's not always easy to find it. True, it's not. And that's why it's what became very apparent to me is that the people who I have worked with, it doesn't matter whether they are super successful entrepreneurs or business people or whether they were a stay-at-home mom. Everyone who comes to me feels less than, feels like they are not deserving, feels like they are no longer worthy. And that breaks my heart because these are beautiful, smart, loving people who deserve and are deserving of everything they want and everything that they dream about. And yet they feel as though they no longer are worthy of wanting those things. Yes. And that I think brings me to this self-forgiveness piece, Mm. right? Can we talk about that a little bit? Because that has been an ongoing process for me as well. Because even after the initial, okay, younger Jen, you made decisions based on the information you had and the best decisions you could have made at that time. And the reason I am here right now in this moment and context and time and space is because younger Jen made those decisions and whether or not they always felt good is kind of besides the point, right? But there had to be an active dialogue that went on between me and my younger self regarding that forgiveness piece that even with all the work still comes up to this day. So how do you walk through your clients through that process so they can forgive and then understand that they are worthy of everything that they want? So first they have to be open to even the notion of self-forgiveness. Not everybody is and not everybody's ready. So you have to be... Yeah. Can I pause you right here for a second too? Because this came up for something too. I thought for a long time I had to forgive my ex. Mm. That was something that was really... I was like, I'm angry. I'm resentful. And I thought I was resentful at him, but it was really actually about younger versions of me. So I think being open to doing something like that, you're right, is really important asking those questions because otherwise the door is shut. Right. Exactly. And you're right. A lot of people think, well, I could never forgive. And forgiveness isn't about the other person. Mm. Has zero to do with your ex. Zero. Yes, you know, there are benefits to forgiving that person if you can get yourself there. But really, the forgiveness has nothing to do with them. It's all about you. Because when you carry around that bitterness, that resentment, that anger, that hatred, it doesn't hurt them at all. But it's killing you. Yep. It's that quote about drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Mm. You're feeling yourself. A sticker a long time ago. I right? remember thinking like, damn, they read me <laughs> big time. Yeah, you're right? totally right. Mm-hmm. Because the stories that you're telling yourself, those narratives, and if you're not willing and able to let go of them, you're going to remain that anger, bitter person. And 
if that's not who you want to be, then something has to change because you can't continue to tell yourself the same stories and expect yourself to change. It's impossible. So we have to figure out a way to rewire, to rethink, to formulate new beliefs so that you can begin to heal and you can begin to change. Yes. I want to go back to something that you had said earlier too about, you know, changing our societal view about this loss too, because I think because of a lot of these pressures, it makes things like self-forgiveness difficult because then we have to look in a mirror of something that's not necessarily looked highly upon by the people around us. And one of the things that prevented me from feeling comfortable and open to sharing my story is that people say really stupid things. (laughs) And I'm not interested in hearing your opinion or judgment or advice necessarily. And so we don't talk about it. And I think that's one of the things that keeps us quiet is because we just don't want to have a conversation and interact with someone who's not actually giving us what we need. In fact, they're giving us more of what we don't need. So how do we navigate that? And if you are someone on the outside, how can you interact with someone who's going through a divorce that is helpful and productive? Okay. So going to how do you, if you are going through divorce, how do you interact with people who are not providing you with the support that you want or are sharing views that maybe you don't agree with? And one of the things that is really important to understand, but not always easy to understand is what other people think is none of my business. And when you can really lean into that, it won't matter if other people are judging you or if what other people are thinking about your situation. It won't matter because truly it doesn't matter. What other people think about you and your divorce and your marriage and how you're co-parenting and the, the agreements that you're making, the choices that you're making, the only person that it matters to is you and your children and the family that you have now together, which is you're no longer a family in one home, you're a family in two homes. And this is if you're, if you have young children, but even if your children are grown and flown, or if you never had children, being able to hold on to what other people think of me or my situation is none of my business will allow you to rise above whatever it is they're saying. The other piece that I also wanted to mention is when you start to get into, oh my God, I can't believe they said that. Or why can't they understand my viewpoint? Or I don't understand why they don't understand my viewpoint. Recognizing that you're judging their judgment Mm -hmm. and getting really curious maybe about, well, isn't it interesting that they said X, Y, and Z, A, B, and C? I wonder why that is. And perhaps it's because whatever it is, like they're coming at, at it with their own baggage, their own trauma. We don't know what goes on behind closed doors. So understanding and being able to go, oh, okay, right? I get it. Their parents divorced or they're flailing in their own marriage. And this is their way of reassuring themselves that it's not going to happen to me. It has nothing to do with you. Yeah. So that's huge. And that takes a lot of practice, right? It's like, I think of those moments and the work that we do in our own arenas and we're like training for these moments, right? As if we're going to like this mental, emotional gym Mm -hmm. (laughs) and we're training and training. So when that interaction comes, you actually get to be in a place of what, you know, I'm going to take it back to what you said at the beginning of of neutrality of 
totally being unaffected by what another person responds with when you're sharing your story. That takes a lot of practice. It does. And you're right. It is like a a mental gym. I think you said it is that it's like when you go to the gym and you lift weights to tone your muscles and you get toned and then you stop lifting and then you're wondering, well, where did my muscles go? Right. It's the same thing. You do the work, you do the work, you do the work. And then you're like, I'm good. And then you stop. And three months later, you're like, holy crap, why am I back in the basement down the rabbit hole? It's because you have to constantly be working the mindset muscles and the rewiring of your beliefs and your thoughts because your old default programming is so strong and it's so easy to slip back into those old patterns, those old beliefs, because those old patterns and old beliefs were planted in your subconscious at a very early age. And so they've been there a really long time. And this new work, this new thought process, this new way of being and thinking and doing is in infancy, basically, right? Compared to all of that programming that goes back to when you were a child. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, it absolutely makes sense. Yes. So constantly working the work and also taking responsibility for how you show up. That's a big piece of this also. And that can be confronting in and of itself. And I'm glad you brought that up because taking personal responsibility for your choices and recognizing that every single thing is a choice, even the divorce itself. And a lot of people say, well, how can that even be? Like, I didn't want this divorce. This is not a choice. Like, I have no option. And I would argue, while you may not have an option with regard to the divorce, because the laws allow people to get divorced, even if only one of the parties wants it, but you do have a choice as to how you're going to show up, how you're going to approach that, the divorce. That's where you have the choice. That's where choice can be made. Because when you say, this wasn't my choice, you become the victim. You put yourself in victimhood and you're powerless. And so when you can get to a place where you're able to say, okay, maybe I didn't want this, but there are options and choices that I get to make now. And you choose them with information and thought around what your choice is going to be. And then you decide and you take personal responsibility for that choice. All the power comes back to you. So it's so important to recognize that you know, at every step of the divorce process and beyond, every single thing is a choice. There is nothing where you have no options. Now, the choices may not be good, right? It may be choice A, which sucks, and choice B, which is even worse, but you still have a choice. When you say, I don't like either one, so I'm just going to do nothing, and the choice gets made for you, that's where you become the victim again. Yes. And then this, of course, reminds me of the book, The Choice, which have you read that one? I haven't, but it is on my list. I know I need to read it. (laughs) That is a life changing book. I will put that in the show notes as well by Dr. Edith Eager, who is a a Holocaust survivor and just brilliant woman. But that's, that's exactly what she talks about is everything being a choice. And finding your power in that is is how we get through and and survive. So I want to bring it back before I ask you the last question about if if you're a person on kind of on the periphery and you're watching someone go through divorce, you know, how can you show up and do something supportive instead of putting your foot in your mouth? (laughs) So first, recognizing that you might put your foot in your mouth Mm. and just being open to saying, I don't really know what to say in this moment, but I just want you to know that I'm here for you. What do you need? 
I think that goes a long way to just say, I'm here for you. What do you need? Rather than assuming or presuming, I think that could be really helpful. Also, if you do know, if you're close enough to the person to just show up and be there, be there for your friend or your sister or your mother or brother, right? Your family member, like just be there for them and not judge them. (laughs) So really get curious about your own judgments, like, ooh, right? Am I judging the marriage and the fact that they're getting divorced? And can I get curious about it and be like, oh, isn't it interesting? And I wonder what they were thinking or feeling and how can you come at it from a place of compassion as opposed to a place of like, like, I can't believe you, whatever it is that you can't believe, right? That you're breaking your family apart or like all the things, right? And I'm sure you've heard like, I can't believe you're breaking your family apart or it wasn't that bad, right? There are no broken bones. He didn't hit you, right? So there's a lot of shame and blame around that too, because there are many marriages that fall apart and there really is no big like, oh my God, right? There was no infidelity. There was no domestic violence, but there might've been some emotional abuse going on, but there doesn't even have to be that though. It could just be that you're just no longer compatible as lovers. You're no longer compatible as a team together in one house. It doesn't mean you can't be better as a team for your children, if you have children, in two different households. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you're actually a better team if you are in two separate households. Yeah. And, you know, I chuckled there because it hits home. And it's interesting, too, because, again, like you said, it, it feels really lonely. And because we don't talk about it, it seems even more isolating. Whereas if we were able to talk about it, there are so many people going through the exact same thing, which is what I really wanted to highlight this, because whether you're listening and you're going through it yourself or you know somebody who's going through it, you know, talking about it is going to change the way we interact with each other around this loss and support each other and humanize it in a way that we can all grow and move forward together because, you know, these, there are only so many themes, right? You're not alone. And this is sometimes part of the human experience, which is okay. It's what makes us human. Absolutely. So in regards to the conversation we've had and how we want people to show up, especially in a place where interacting with colleagues, we have this work family, but also we're in front of kids all the time. I ask this question to everybody. And so I'm I'm curious to know through the lens of what we just talked about, you know, what is your dream for the future of education and how teachers can show up? I don't want to say despite what's going on at home, but as a complete person, right? This isn't about compartmentalize. Well, this is home stuff and this is work stuff. Like, leave your BS at the door. It doesn't work that way. Wherever you go, there you are. How do we do that? What is the dream there for you? And I love how you said, wherever we go, here we are, because it is so true, right? You are who you are and you can't, as much as you try, compartmentalize, right? Things are going to seep in wherever you are. And so when you ask me that question, I think that as an educator, if you are able to feel what you need to feel, believe in yourself and believe that it's okay to feel your emotions, to have the tools to regulate your nervous system, like breathing, tapping, which we didn't really talk about, but these are all ways to you know regulate your nervous system. You can carry that with you into your classroom because your students have also 
can gain insight and perspective from you. They are looking to you. And I want to give an example because it's something that I can um, relate more to as a practitioner with individuals and their families. Many of my clients use the tools that I give them, the breathing, the tapping, the regulating the nervous system, the being able to get to neutral with their children. And so your students may also be experiencing divorce in their home. And so if you are able to share tools for them to be able to regulate their nervous system, to get to neutral, what a gift. And so many of my clients have come back to me and said, I shared this with my child who was really struggling and we breathed together. We've punched pillows together. We've done all these things and it has helped with the transitions. It's helped with that them to release their emotions about the divorce. This is such a gift. Like this is my dream for people in divorce and families. And so it can translate to you as an educator in the classroom as well for your students who may also be experiencing traumas at home, divorce trauma, separation, domestic violence, all the things. Mm. Yes, yes, yes to all of it. Yes, that's kind of the whole thing. That's why I do what I do. And that's why you do what you do. This is really how we make change that doesn't just affect us, but the generations after us. Absolutely. Remarkable. So I can't thank you enough for being here, Sherry. People want to know more about you and your work. How can they find you? My website, which is potomaccoaching.com, or they can email me at Sherry, S-H-A-R-R-I at potomaccoaching.com. Fantastic. And all those links will be in the show notes as well. Thank you for this very important conversation. It was really great to talk with you today. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode and know somebody who could benefit from it, please share it. Uh, Make sure you subscribe to Take Notes so you can get all of the new episodes downloaded right away as they come out. Stay well, everyone. We'll see you next time on Take Notes. Incredible, right? Together, we can revolutionize the face of education. It's all possible. And it's all here for you right now. Let's keep the conversation going at Empowered Educator Faculty Room on Facebook.